Well, at least to begin with, I would ask you to open your Bibles to John chapter 17. We'll just be passing through that neighborhood. John chapter 17. Now, earlier in looking at objections to the doctrine of election, we gave attention to the question, why evangelize? I mean, if God chose those who would be saved and only these will be saved, well, why should we be engaged then in evangelizing sinners? Well, without going into an extensive review, uh, we have seen that God did indeed choose sinners for salvation. Second uh, Thessalonians Chapter 2, verse 13, God be thanked that from the beginning he chose you for salvation through sanctification of spirit and belief in the truth, or that which was our call to worship, Ephesians 1, uh, verse 4, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, and many other passages as well. And it's also true to say that only then the elect will be saved. Notice the words of the Lord Jesus Christ there in the 17th chapter, his high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 2. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Now Christ has authority over all humanity, but he doesn't give eternal life to all humanity. Only to those whom the Father has given him, the elect. Only these will be saved. Acts 13.48, as many as were ordained or appointed to eternal life, these believed. And so it is true that only the elect will be saved. But even those who dislike this teaching of scripture uh, about election, they must agree, as we pointed out in the previous hour, the the number is fixed. Uh, Revelation 17.8, those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So all the names in the book of life, they were there from the foundation of the world. And uh, and that being so, the number is fixed as to those who uh, will indeed be forever with the Lord. Well, if that number is fixed, why evangelize then? Well, we noted a number of answers uh, to that in the previous hour. And one of the answers given was, well, because God has commanded it. Right? Whether we understand or not, as, has God commanded evangelism? Well, we'd say yes, but I would ask, where? Where do you find that in Scripture? That we, all of us, are responsible to be evangelizing. Or to put another way, exactly what is commanded of you in this connection, in God's Word? What has He said? Now, perhaps... Some would answer with the Great Commission. You're familiar with that, but notice that if you would. Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission is stated there. Our Lord's words, beginning at verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now, is this really to you, the Great Commission? 
Well, it's not personal. It's to Christ's church in the person of her apostles. Remember how we're described in Ephesians 2, uh, verse 20, of being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Well, this is uh, given to them, but not just for them. The Great Commission was this, even to the end of the age. Well, obviously the apostles are not here to the end of the age. So it is talking about Christ's church. This was given, uh, uh, again, to them for Christ's church. And in that sense, yes, the Great Commission is for all of us as the Lord's people. But that doesn't mean each one of us are to go to all the nations. That doesn't mean that we're all to be engaged in teaching and baptizing. And yet we all do have our part in this great commission as the church universal. But remember, the Lord Jesus is building his church, especially in connection with local congregations. We see that in the book of Acts and elsewhere. Therefore, the great commission is to each believer. This is to you as joined with others in the context of Christ's church, especially local church life. And therefore, when Paul's describing the local church, telling Timothy, I'm writing this so you'll know how you ought to conduct yourself, 1 Timothy 3.15, in the house of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. He's talking about the local church being the preserver and promoter of God's truth, pillar and ground of the truth. Or notice the language of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Again, we're talking about evangelism. Where is it commanded? Philippians 1.27, Paul's saying, whatever happens to me, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So in that sense, we can say, yes, the local church, all in it, have this responsibility of striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now that includes evangelism, but it includes so much more. Uh, for instance, being a good church member, striving together, uh, not just attending, but commitment uh, to the church and to each member in that church, uh, making and keeping the church a, a healthy church, submitting to the leaders, submitting to one another, uh, truly knowing one another, loving the brethren, caring about one another. Uh, the writer of Hebrews talks about uh, uh, considering one another to stir up to love and good works and the like. All that goes with local church life. You know, the church and even the local church is called a body. First Corinthians twelve twenty seven. You are the body of Christ. So functioning together. Well, that's all part of the church striving together, standing together for the faith of the gospel. And in that sense, that is part of evangelism in the broader scope, right? All that goes with the church being what it's supposed to be. But what about me more specifically? Evangelism. Me actually sharing the gospel with the unsaved. Where is that commanded? Now some have treated this matter uh, as if every Christian must witness to everything that breathes. And if you don't do so in five minutes, then you're sinning. Well, with all due respect to godly zeal, we must say, is that really what God has commanded every believer to do? Then you've got some who treat personal evangelism as if it's our responsibility to produce conversions. It's all up to us. You've got to go out and you've got to do this. 
Uh, so you turn up the emotional pressure, you coerce, uh, maybe push them into a sinner's prayer or the like. But that obviously uh, fails to take into consideration that God alone can save the sinner. You know, you, Paul talked about he did not come as a philosopher or an order that your faith wouldn't rest in the uh, wisdom of men, but in the power of God. God alone can do this. So we must say that, no, it's not that it's my responsibility uh, to bring about results, conversions. So others have seen personal evangelism as simple. We just invite the unconverted to church. We're talking about that earlier. Just invite them to church. That's what your job is. Your job is to invite them to church. Well, there is something right about inviting people to that place of Christ's special presence and the, looking at the primacy of preaching and how that is used. But again, is that the extent of our responsibility in seeking to evangelize the unconverted? Where in the world are we instructed? What is commanded of us? Uh, every person by way of, quote, personal evangelism. Well, it's not found on every page of Scripture, but we do find it in Scripture. Uh, we could appeal to Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. I would ask you to come there. The very context in which we are told that we are the salt of the earth, we are the light of the world. It's in that connection, Matthew chapter 5, the 16th verse. There we are told, notice, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now we're talking a godly life, we're talking our light shining, that is to say that the gospel uh, has taken effect, taken root in our own lives and changed us, made us new creatures in Christ. But this language doesn't simply say let your light so shine and that's it. It assumes some verbal communication. That is, say, let your light so shine that they may see your good works and pat you on the back. Well, no, that they may glorify your Father in heaven. That is, it's known why we do what we do, that we don't just operate out of good morals, we're just nice people. It's a result of salvation. That's why there's any light to shine in us. That God is our Father. Well, that would also include how it is that God is our Father. As as many as received Christ that he gave the right to become the children of God. John chapter 1. How it is to be saved. All that would be included. It's communicated. Therefore, they know God is your Father. This is why you do what you do. Not just speaking of Christ, living it out, but not just living it out, speaking of Christ. Oh, oh we can say here's a place where it's commanded. I guess we could appeal to 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Uh, Therefore be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your labor is not in vain in the Lord. However, uh, personal evangelism is not the only way that we are to serve the Lord. Right? And as much as you've done the least things my brethren have done to me, there's a way we serve the Lord, how we minister to one another. Uh, but even so, uh, that is the Christian life, knowing the truth, standing steadfast in the truth, and uh, uh, serving the Lord in that connection. But there are two texts especially which speak, I can say specifically, of personal evangelism. And I want to consider these with you. Please come to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians in the fourth chapter. We'll start at verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, 
that you know you may know how you ought to answer each one. Those who are outside, that obviously that means the unsaved. Doesn't mean somebody who's literally standing out in the cold somewhere. Okay? All who are outside of Christ. We are to walk in wisdom. And of course it takes wisdom to know how to conduct ourselves towards such. And that clearly, verse 6, includes our speech. Knowing how we ought to respond to each one. That is, uh, their questions and also seeing their real need and how to respond in light of what their real need is. So in other words, it would include speaking to them about our Savior and that for their own eternal good. And even doing so with a sense of duty. How you ought to answer each one. Notice what Paul said of himself in verses 3 and 4. Meanwhile praying also for us that God will open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in change that I may speak it sorry make it manifest as I ought to speak well then he says and you ought how you ought to answer each one so a sense of, of duty to do good by the way of the gospel truth but does that mean then that each Christian is obligated to speak with each and every person they meet everything that wiggles you must share the gospel well, notice those words again at the end of verse 5 here when he says redeeming the time with reference to those who are outside the unconverted you are to redeem the time the word redeem it means to purchase or to buy up the picture of buying up items in the marketplace and that which is to be bought up is not simply time you know you've only got so many hours a day and you make sure you use those hours wisely well that's good counsel I suppose but that's not the point that's being made here the word is translated opportunity in Galatians 6.10 as you have opportunity to do good to all men especially those of the household of faith that's the idea in other words he's saying buying up the opportunities you have opportunities towards those who are outside you buy them up now that doesn't mean that every single minute you're out there knocking on doors and the like but as occasion presents itself as times are suitable you buy those up and obviously, uh, that which is our duty, buying up the opportunities, uh, as circumstances allow, it's going to be by our speech. When there's an open door to speak for Christ, uh, whatever makes for that opportunity, you buy it up. And uh, in that connection, having all wisdom, recognizing what is an opportunity, how to make the best of the opportunity. And notice again, the emphasis on speech in verse 6, gracious. It will communicate the idea of courteous and kind, but also of showing God's grace in the way that we speak. He adds there, seasoned with salt. Well, it could be understood as without corruption. You know, salt uh, stops putrefaction. Or it could mean speaking in a way that you arrest corruption and others doing them good. Either way, it doesn't matter. It's about the same. It's speaking to the good of our hearers. Much like Ephesians 4 about no corrupt speech coming out of your mouth, but that which is good for edifying, necessary grace. But notice again the language in verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace. He's not simply saying, when you're witnessing to somebody, make sure your speech is with grace. When they're being receptive or not, let your speech be. He's saying always. Whether you're witnessing or not. And certainly if they are responding in hostility, your speech is still to be the same. 
with grace. Now, that could mean exhibiting God's grace. It, it, it could mean, uh, again, the idea of being gracious and courteous and kind and showing God's grace. But no matter how you, you cut it, the point is it's always, always let your speech be this way. That you may know how you ought to answer each one. That's our duty. Buying up opportunities. Always speaking with grace. Well, notice the other text. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter and the third chapter. In particular, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So here's an opportunity to be bought up. They're asking and you're to answer. Now the context has to do with persecution. Uh, verse 14. Uh, clearly that's their threats and so forth. Not to be afraid. But uh, the idea that that uh, whatever the occasion, they're asking a reason for the hope that is in you, and you're to be ready to answer it. Ready, he says. In the same way that we're to be ready for the coming of Christ, or we're to be ready for every good work, Titus 3.1. The idea, we're mindful of our duty. Uh, we've got a willing mind. We're eager to do our duty. And again, do you got that little word, always. So the idea of a constant readiness... I think it's the word that's used maybe of military on alert or maybe to bring it more home like a bargain shopper there at uh, 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 you know, Walmart trying to buy up a bargain. Here they are ready. Uh, well, that's the idea here. A readiness that includes the idea of knowing the gospel. Uh, of something of how to even communicate the gospel, because if I'm to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in me, well, that means I need to know something about that hope, my future in Christ, to know uh, why I can confidently expect to be glorified. Me, a sinner, being glorified together with Christ, how's that going? Ah, it's because of Christ, who is our hope. It's because Christ suffered and died on that cross and then was raised from the dead, and that we are now forgiven and more justified and joint heirs with Christ all because of God's mercy to us knowing something of the sufficiency and certainty of his work and able to communicate that work how it is that sinners can have such a glorious future and a confident expectation of it if it's our duty to communicate the reason for our hope then it's our duty to know and be able to talk about those things that make for our hope the gospel right can you do that Well, Peter also emphasizes our manner, our demeanor, when he says with meekness and fear. Again, it would remind you of Paul's words in Colossians 4 that uh, the way we speak and, and the like. Gentle, considerate, humble. It could here include meekness and fear, reverence before God and, and uh, treating others with respect. But I would have you to note how this verse, verse 15, begins. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That's actually the imperative. That's what's commanded. That you sanctify the Lord God. What does that mean? 
that's our duty. But what exactly is he talking about? Well, the word sanctify, it means to set apart or to treat as holy, regard as holy. Now, what we have here is actually a command um, that, that comes from uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 8. For the sake of time, we won't turn there. But in Isaiah 8, 12, uh, here the people are being told not to be afraid. There are all these enemies and they're uh, out there and they're not to be afraid of them. And then it's followed by 8.13, which is here quoted by Peter, uh, when he says, do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Well, what he's referring to there is, uh, uh, you know, the Lord of hosts, he shall be the one that you hallow. He is the one uh, that you are to highly regard. Uh, therefore, fear him, but do not fear men. So that's the point that he's getting at. Don't be afraid of their threats. And it's in that connection. He says, but you're to sanctify. You've got guys persecuting. You've got guys willing to do you harm. Old Testament, New Testament. Therefore, you regard as holy the Lord God. Recognize him for who he is. That he is for you. That he's with you. And therefore, whatever threats, whatever they would come at you, thinking, no, but wait a minute. This is my God. I'm his. He uh, is with me. But then Peter adds this from that Isaiah passage. He says, sanctify in your hearts. Not just something outwardly. But he's saying in the very core of your being. As the controlling reality. Recognize God for who he is. Regard and treat him as holy. This idea of giving him first place. The idea of, okay, they would persecute you. but wait, No, no. God is real. God is holy. He is my God. First place given to him. And therefore, persecute him or mindful. No, wait. I belong to the Lord. He is mine. Honoring him. Walking before him. Walking with him. But again, you notice that word always. When he says here, verse 15, sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready. Knowing God is real, always. Knowing God through Jesus Christ our Savior and that he is for us, always. Very mindful of him, walking with him and before him, always. If you like it or not, things going well that day or not, that's not the issue. He is ever the same and we are ever to be with him, mindful of him. And therefore ever ready to give the reason for our hope to any who would ask. To buy up the opportunity. Let me tell you about Jesus. Well that in a nutshell is what is commanded even each of us with reference to evangelism. Individually. But of course not as simply individuals as joined with Christ's people. But now recall why it is that we're looking at this. As I pointed out, it's because as we see Ephesians 1.4, God chose sinners before the foundation of the world. Those names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Well, that being so, why should we evangelize then? Well, as I said, it's because we're commanded. But the fact that we are commanded holds out rich encouragement to us on two fronts especially. Firstly this, 
if it's commanded, that means God gives grace. You know, you look at the Christian life as a whole. And God is commanded. But he also gives grace. Or remember the uh, illustration I used, I think it was last week, about the man in Mark chapter 3 with the withered hand. And Jesus commanded him to stretch out his hand. Well, he also gave him grace. And he stretched out, well, that's us in living the Christian life. You're commanded. Uh, well, that means that God gives grace. When Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. You abide in me, I in you. You bear much fruit. The idea, he gives grace so that you bear much fruit, he says. Well, in the evangelism commanded, you know, if you ever feel intimidated, what am I to say? Well, he gives grace and he gives it in the doing. Not when, I, when I'm zapped, then I'll go speak to somebody. No, it's in the process of buying up the opportunity that he will give grace. Letting our light so shine before men that they see our good works, glorify our Father in heaven. Grace to do, grace to speak. He gives it in the doing. And therefore, brethren, by recognizing these commands, sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Know God is real. And then buy up the opportunities that are yours in providence. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. There's encouragement. But then also this. Why has God commanded this of his people? Both corporately and individually. I mean, since, come on, he has chosen sinners before time. These sinners will be saved. Uh, why has he commanded us to be engaged in evangelism? Does he need us? Oh, no, God can't do anything. Well, absolutely not. Right? You think of Saul of Tarsus. When Saul of Tarsus is on the road to Damascus, and Christ intervened directly. Right? It wasn't because somebody was standing there handing him a tract. It's the Lord Jesus. Well, he didn't. And even later, when Ananias comes to him there and, and uh, speaks to him, well, God could have done it some other way, but he chose to use Ananias. Christ has chosen to use his church in building his church. That would include, then, our evangelism. He's the one with all authority to give eternal life to as many as the Father has given him, and he exercises it at will. But he does so as present with his people. And therefore, it is in that connection... Uh, that it's the privilege given us. Like we saw earlier in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2, he says that God chose you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth by which he called you by our gospel. As that gospel was presented, God used that and drew them in. But it was, that was the means that God used in the salvation of sinners. Humanly speaking, it looks very ordinary. Just a, one guy saved by God's grace and he's talking to another about Christ, about God's grace, about salvation. And yet it's not just something ordinary. It's God himself at work. The Lord's choice, the Lord's doing. And therefore, brethren, seeing these commands, it, it should cause us to feel a sense of obligation. Yes, I am to buy up opportunities. Uh, don't feel beaten up that you know oh, I've got to witness to everything that wiggles or else I'm sinning no but as there are opportunities there we're to buy them up that's true we're always to be ready with God sanctified in our hearts there should be a sense of obligation but should there not also be a sense of privilege a sense of great privilege you know Paul talks about it in 2nd Corinthians 5 to, to me was given the ministry of reconciliation here's Paul this sinner and yet entrusted with this glorious gospel well, so with us, brethren. What a privilege is ours to represent Christ. What a privilege is ours to be used of God. Who are we? And yet he should so work in us that we're the salt of the earth and the light of the world, even letting our light so shine. 
And he uses that, the gospel going forth from sinful creatures like us. And is that not powerful motivation? And ought we out then to expect that in our simple sharing of the gospel with our children, with our parents, with our workmates, with whoever, the powers of Christ, it's his gospel. One sows another waters, but God gives the increase. He does give the increase. He blesses his word. And he uses his people. And his word does not return to him void. Well, how right then that we should see that as expectation. Who knows what he will do? Well, might God help us? If you're here without Christ, I hope you would understand what evangelism is. It's not just people speaking to you about Jesus and your need of the Savior. It's God himself has appointed this way for you to hear. You're lost and undone, and without Christ you perish in hell. Ah, but good news. Jesus Christ came into this world to rescue sinners. Why did he die on the cross? Oh, to pay the debt, to secure forgiveness. And now he lives to save to the uttermost. All who will come, believe on the Lord Jesus. Go to Christ. You will be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for so great salvation from such a great and glorious Savior. And we thank you for the privilege that is ours of being engaged in speaking about Christ to those who uh, are lost in their own sin. And yet this is the message you use to raise those who are spiritually dead. Help us to be faithful at buying up opportunities. We ask that you would be pleased to use us. Give us those opportunities. And we ask, oh Lord, that you would get honor for your name. And you do good to never dying souls. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.